Today at Reader's Corner, James Risen, author of The Last Honest Man, The CIA, The FBI, The Mafia, and The Kennedys, in one senator's fight to save democracy. I'm Bob Custer. Welcome to Reader's Corner. For decades now, America's national security state has grown ever bigger, ever more secretive, and powerful, and ever more abusive. Only once did someone manage to put a stop to any of it. In his latest book, The Last Honest Man, Pulitzer Prize-winning author James Risen profiles Senator Frank Church of Idaho. An unlikely hero, Church led opposition to the Vietnam War and became a scathing critic of what he saw as American imperialism around the world. The dark truths Church exposed from assassination plots by the CIA to the surveillance of civil rights activists by the NSA and the FBI would forever change the way that Americans thought about their government and their ability to hold it accountable. James Risen is a two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author, a former New York Times reporter, and The Intercept's senior national security correspondent. His best-selling books include State of War and Pay Any Price, Greed, Power, and Endless War. James Risen, welcome to Reader's Corner. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, this is just such a fascinating book for me and anyone who's lived in Idaho for a while. Uh, it, it certainly talks about a man that uh, we've heard of, but perhaps uh, as the years go by, we don't get to think about him as often as we did, and we don't remember as much as uh, we should about this uh, rather unusual politician. Maybe you could just kick us off with Frank Church's take on American foreign policy. He served in World War II. So he was a veteran, but he comes into public life with some very different ideas about America's role in the world. Sure, yeah. Well, I mean, Church was a fascinating, uh, very complicated man, I think, but uh, at heart was a very basic, basically honest and uh, and had a lot of integrity. And that's why I chose to give the, the book a title, The Last Honest Man. I think he was one of the, one of the greatest senators uh, that we've ever had. And um, I wanted to remind people of what it was like when we had good people in Congress instead of kind of what we have today. I think he was, you know, as you said, he grew up in Boise. He was born in 1924. Uh, he went to uh, public schools in, in Boise and uh, was always considered the smartest kid in class Everyone around him uh, recognized from from very early on how special uh, and talented and smart he was. And yet he was also very popular, which uh, he wasn't just the nerd sitting in the corner. He was both the smartest kid in the schools. Uh, he went to, you know, Boise High School, and uh, but he was also the most popular. So he was, he won uh, national oratory contest put on by the American Legion, uh, which gave him a scholarship to Stanford. But he was also the uh, the class president of Boise High School. So he had a large group of friends uh, who all looked up to him. And uh, his girlfriend was uh, Bethine Clark, who was the daughter of the governor of uh, Idaho. And um, he then um, served in World War II as an army intelligence officer in uh, stationed in China. And that experience really had a deep impact on him. He was 
in, in China, he, you know, the United States was uh, supporting the nationalist uh, regime of Chiang Kai-shek uh, against the Japanese. And he saw firsthand how corrupt the uh, Chiang Kai-shek regime was and how badly, how incompetent their army was and how they, they lacked enough support of the uh, Chinese people. And that had a big effect on him later when he went to the Senate and uh, saw what was happening in Vietnam. And uh, it led him to oppose the Vietnam War very early on. He was first elected to the Senate in 1956 uh, from Idaho. He was uh, a liberal Democrat. And at the time, I don't think many people in Idaho remember that Idaho was kind of a, almost a swing state for a long time. Um, it started out, uh, you know, as a state early on, it was filled with um, labor unions and uh, there was a lot of labor strife early on in Idaho's history. And uh, there were, by the time of the Depression, it was really trending democratic. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt won Idaho in four straight presidential elections, and then Harry Truman won Idaho in 1948. And so there was a long time, and then, you know, there were Idaho, gov you know, there were Democratic governors and Democratic members of the Senate and House. Mm -hmm. So Idaho, there was a long time period when it was uh, fairly normal for Democrats to get elected from Idaho. Mm -hmm. And uh, Frank Church defeated uh, Herman Welker in the 1956 election, uh, who was, Welker was uh, uh, a very close ally of uh, Joe McCarthy of the uh, red baiting uh, fame. And he was so close to McCarthy that Welker's nickname was uh, Little Joe from Idaho. <laughs> and um, then uh, by that, when uh, Church beat him, he was only 32. So he's one of the youngest people ever elected to the Senate. He uh, was really a pretty traditional Democrat at the time in the late 50s. He was kind of a Cold War Democrat. But Vietnam really radicalized him and changed him. And uh, he began to see that the war was uh, really uh, horrible. Uh, he, he just he opposed the war from almost day one, beginning in 1962. And uh, that radicalized him, and it made him into uh, something very different from what he started out as in Congress. Uh, he, he began to see that the United States was becoming a militaristic empire, and that Vietnam was really a symptom rather than a cause of the drift of the United States after World War II into having a large national security state and wanting a, an empire around the world. And he became really, by the late 60s and early 70s, a really radical politician who said some things that in his speeches, both in Washington and Idaho, that are pretty stunning that uh, someone from a state like Idaho would say, but he compared the United States of the late 1960s to the Soviet Union and said that we were no better than the Soviets. The Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968, he said, was no different from the Vietnam War and our occupation of Vietnam. 
And he still got elected again in 1968 in Idaho because people there, I think, were also turning against the war and, and, and were also turning against Lyndon Johnson. So he had an uncanny ability, I think, to both change his uh, views and transform, but also keep a feel for what people in Idaho were thinking. And so he got reelected four times to the Senate from Idaho. Let's stop on the Vietnam War for a second. You mentioned LBJ. Uh, President Lyndon Johnson was a pretty powerful dude as he was expanding the war in Vietnam. And uh, when Frank Church decides that he's going to oppose the Vietnam War, he understands he's taking on this powerful president. That relationship did not go too well from that point on, did it not? No, no. And the <laughs> the uh, Lyndon Johnson had been Senate Majority Leader when uh, Church uh, was first elected. So he had a long uh, relationship with with Johnson. But then when Johnson became president after Kennedy's assassination, and he, you know, increased, escalated the war in Vietnam, Church saw that as a betrayal because during the 1964 presidential campaign, Johnson had said, we don't, we're not going to get involved with U.S. troops in Vietnam. And then as soon as he got elected, he did exactly that. And Church felt betrayed by that. And he really turned against Johnson and uh, started to, even though they were in the same party, uh, he started demanding that the Senate Foreign Relations Committee hold hearings on Vietnam. And when those hearings were finally held, it really marked a watershed moment in the country's uh, opposition to the war in Vietnam, because it was finally kind of legitimized the anti-war movement. And uh, Church continued to fight against the war, and, and Johnson just got angrier and angrier against him. He had, uh, he, he had one famous uh, uh, line that Johnson used about church. He, he, ta- he claimed that he had told, he said that in a private meeting, Johnson had said, you know, who's telling you all this about Vietnam? Where are you getting your information? He said, Walter Lippmann. <laughs> Lippmann was a columnist at the time, a famous columnist. Right. And Johnson said, well, the next time you need a dam in Idaho, call Walter Whitman and not me. And <laughs> That's a great line. It was a, he made, a Johnson made that up. It didn't really happen. He didn't really say that to Church, and Church later said he, he totally made that up. But <laughs> a great line uh, that stuck uh, with uh, Church. Yeah. So you, you claim that uh, Frank Church never really received the credit for his role in ending the U.S. role in, in Vietnam and the Kerper Church, Church amendments uh, may have been right. one of the things that you could point to. Yeah, the, uh, you know, we had a long, the, you know, the, there was a anti-war movement in the United States went on for years in the streets, basically. It was a protest movement. But for a long time period after the protest movement began in this, in the grassroots it wasn't really having much of an effect in Congress or with the White House. And it really took a few key leaders in Congress to finally uh, change, you know, legislatively uh, the funding for the Pentagon and the military. And Frank Church took the lead in that. He, he decided that the way to stop the war, since the protests weren't really 
having an effect was to cut off funding. And that's the one thing Congress could do. And so we had a whole series of what became known as Cooper Church Amendments, which were amendments that he and a Republican senator named Cooper tried to get through the Senate and also have similar bills through the House that he first would try to cut off funding for operations in other countries in Southeast Asia and finally also cut off all funding for the war in Vietnam. And I think there are a lot of historians who now recognize that it was that effort in Congress that finally forced Richard Nixon, who came in as president in 1969, to speed up the process of negotiating a peace a settlement with North Vietnam. And um, the Cooper Church Amendments were gaining traction in uh, Congress just as Nixon and uh, Henry Kissinger were finally negotiating an end to the war. You're listening to Reader's Corner. My guest today is James Risen. He's the author of The Last Honest Man, the CIA, the FBI, the Mafia, and the Kennedys in One Senator's Fight to Save Democracy. I suppose if uh, Frank Church is known in Washington today for anything, it's probably for his work on the committee, which which drove you to writing this book, and that, of course, is the, the Church Committee, and uh, I'll let you talk about that in a second. Uh, but before he gets there, he chairs a multinational corporations committee, and I assume that that's really the seed for what becomes the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which just last year, the year before, we celebrated the 25th anniversary of that law that is still in effect and has so much to do with the integrity of American corporations abroad. You want to talk about that for a second? Yeah, the interesting thing about Church's career is uh, after the Vietnam War uh, and after the success, really, of his uh, of the Cooper Church Amendments, he had become a star in Washington, uh, kind of a celebrity at the very close of the Vietnam War. But that didn't last very long. And then uh, Watergate happened, and he was not included in the Watergate committee. And he was kind of shut out of the Watergate investigation. And so people began to forget about him. But very quickly, he kind of latched on to the idea of conducting his own investigation into the power of multinational corporations around the world. And he realized that Vietnam and the uh, this militarism and imperial ambitions of the United States were being fueled in part by the rise of multinational corporations, American multinational corporations, which were having enormous impact on other countries and on U.S. foreign policy. And so he wanted to investigate their power. And he started that before the church committee he had this a subcommittee of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And he started investigating first ITT and its role in Chile uh, because he found that uh, it had been secretly working with the CIA in Chile to overthrow the elected government of Salvador Allende, who was a socialist who wanted to nationalize ITT's uh, phone company in Chile. And that led him to an, a beginnings of an investigation of the CIA. And what he found was when he was investigating 
ITT's role in Chile to work with the CIA in Chile, CIA uh, officials began to lie to him and to his committee about the CIA's role in Chile. What he didn't realize at the time was ITT's work with Chile, with CIA, with the CIA in Chile, was just the tip of a, of the iceberg of a much bigger CIA covert operation in Chile to overthrow Allende. And so the CIA and the Nixon administration wanted to lie to him to stop him from finding out about the larger covert operation in Chile. And that led him down a path towards what became known as the Church Committee and its investigation of the CIA. You know, I was really impressed with the the way you managed to integrate the role of the staff working alongside their senator in in discovering these 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 in, incredible moments in our uh, in our history and and I'll just zero in on one and let you tell the story because I think it has much to do with how the church committee gets involved in the mafia and the kennedys a guy by the name of Andy Postal walks mm. into the church office one day and wants a job and right. I'll let you take it from there <laughs> yeah andy postal was a young guy who was interested in a whole range of issues, but he was very eclectic. He was kind of a libertarian Republican. And he joined the Republican staff of the church committee right after, not long after the committee had started. And he was interested in looking into what the committee was already beginning to look into, which was uh, the CIA's alliance with the mafia that had been started in the late 1950s and early 1960s, first under the Eisenhower administration and then in the Kennedy administration. And he began to do an invest, you know, the rest of the staff was looking through official documents uh, at the White House and the CIA about this. But he instead began to look at FBI files that, uh, because he, there was evidence that the FBI had begun to investigate what the CIA was doing with the mafia. And he uncovered a lot of phone records that were very odd uh, that showed that there was phone calls between mistress of Sam Giancana, who was the Chicago mobster working with the CIA to kill Fidel Castro, and that his girlfriend was calling the White House frequently, and her name was Judith Campbell. Uh, and he saw these phone records at the FBI, uh, in the FBI files, and he wasn't sure what to make of it. And he went to his uh, bosses on the church committee, and suddenly he realized that these were phone calls between Sam Giancana's mistress and President John F. Kennedy in the early 1960s. And so what he had uncovered was the fact that Sam Giancana, a Chicago mobster's girlfriend, was also sleeping with President John F. Kennedy. And this is now, today, we know this as one of the most famous incidents of the 1960s. <laughs> but nobody knew that until the church committee and Andy Postal uncovered it. Mm -hmm. So one of the uh, most fascinating parts of your book, uh, for me anyway, and, and I must say it was it was laughable even though you're doing a very serious treatment here. When you get into the role that the CIA plays in hiring the mafia to assassinate 
and let's just focus on one of those attempted assassinations, Fidel Castro. I mean, that sounds like Jimmy Breslin's old spoof novel, The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight. Uh, yeah. Tell us that story. Yeah, it's, it's really crazy. Um, and it shows you why uh, the CIA needed oversight, because in the late 50s and early 60s, there was no oversight. And that's one of the things you got to remember that prior to the church committee, there were no congressional intelligence committees. There was no oversight at all. And there were no laws that limited what the CIA could do. It had virtually unlimited power. As long as a president thought it was a good idea, they could do pretty much whatever they wanted. And so in the late 1950s, Dwight Eisenhower really wanted to get rid of Fidel Castro. And the CIA kept coming up with ways to do that. And a few CIA officers, including the, you know, the top leaders of the CIA, working with Eisenhower, said, well, why don't we just kill him? And um, one of the plots they came up with, they came up with a whole bunch of harebrained ideas <laughs> on how to kill Fidel Castro. But probably the biggest one was, let's get the mafia to do it. And they set up a team of mafia leaders working with the CIA through a cutout named Robert Mayhew, who was a former FBI official who also worked with the CIA. And they set up shop. They got uh, three senior mafiosos. Uh, they got Sam Giancana, who had been the leader of the Chicago mob. They got Johnny Rosselli, who was a flamboyant uh, mobster from Los Angeles and Las Vegas. And then they got Santo Traficante, who was the mob boss of Florida. And they got them all down at the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami Beach to think about ways to kill Castro and how they could uh, arrange it. And they came up with a bunch of ideas. None of them ever worked, but it was probably the closest they ever got to actually killing Castro because they had the idea, the basic idea they came up with was we'll get somebody close to Castro to poison him. And they, the CIA gave him poison pills and they had some ideas of who to get it to, and they tried, and they actually got some pills to people close to Castro, but those people never actually tried to kill him. They mm -hmm. lost their. But the great side plot of this whole thing was that Sam Giancana, who is the Chicago mobster, had another girlfriend besides Judith Campbell, Phyllis McGuire, who was one of the famous singing McGuire sisters, and she was performing in Las Vegas while. Sam Giancana was in Miami with the CIA and the mob and the other mobsters. And he got jealous about her because Dan Rowan, if you remember Dan Rowan of Rowan and Martin's laugh in yep. the stand-up comic, and he was performing in Las Vegas and Sam Giancana became convinced that uh, Dan Rowan was sleeping with Phyllis McGuire. He told uh, Bob Mayhew the FBI, ex-FBI guy who was running the whole scheme in Miami. I'm leaving because I'm going to go check on Dan Rowan and Phyllis McGuire. And Mayhew said, no, don't leave. I'll figure it, something out. And he hired a private investigator to wiretap McGuire's room in Vegas. And it was such a shoddy job that the police in Vegas found out about it 
And then they told the FBI and the FBI started an investigation and that led they very quickly, they pulled on the threads of that plot and found out all about the CIA's plot working alliance with the mafia to, to kill Castro. And then J. Edgar, that led J. Edgar Hoover to keep investigating these people. And he found out about Judith Campbell and Sam Giancana and the connections to President Kennedy. Yeah. And he then effectively blackmailed President Kennedy over that without ever going public with it. I'm Bob Custer, host of Reader's Corner. Today I'm speaking with James Risen, author of The Last Honest Man. The book examines the fight for democracy by Senator Frank Church of Idaho, a man at the epicenter of numerous investigations into the abuses of power within American government. Well, those are tales uh, that just uh, tell me and instruct our listeners the reason why you get out and get this book. I mean, there are so many great stories in here. Maybe we can jump, since we only have a few minutes left, to the end result of the church committee. Uh, I mentioned one piece of legislation that was passed after the committee finished its hearings, but the other was the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, FISA, which is alive and well today and which has, in our current times, uh, even today, been accused of getting in the way of the war on terrorism or whatever. So why don't you right. just give us a, a thumbnail sketch of what that was and your take on, on FISA today? Sure. Yeah, I mean, there were a whole bunch of reform. Uh, the, the Church Committee really is a watershed moment in the history of U.S. intelligence because – as I said, prior to the Church Committee, there was no oversight and there were no laws and no rules at all put in place to limit the power either of the CIA or the FBI or the National Security Agency. And as a result of the Church Committee and the disclosures of all of the abuses by the CIA, the FBI, and the NSA, the whole series of laws were passed and also executive orders were put in place uh, by a series of presidents over the next few years to limit the power of the CIA and the power of the FBI and the NSA. One of the key laws passed, actually passed during the Carter administration in 1978, after right after the Church Committee finished, was FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. And it was the first law ever passed to limit the, the power of the NSA to spy on Americans and to uh, conduct uh, electronic surveillance inside the United States. And also it limited the CIA and the FBI from doing it as well. And while today it's uh, heavily criticized, uh, it was still the first law ever passed that restricted the ability uh, of the intelligence community to do to spy on Americans. And so uh, it was a watershed moment that uh, brought, helped um, along with other things that helped bring the intelligence community under the rule of law for the first time. Uh, it, it's deeply flawed law that has been, you know, various presidents have tried to weaken it over uh, the decades, uh, especially after 9-11. The uh, Bush administration went around the uh, around FISA to continue to spy on Americans and until they were uh, discovered. And then, you know, there were other many other laws that were passed or executive orders that were passed to 
uh, limit the power of the intelligence community as a result of the church committee. And the creation of permanent intelligence committees in the Senate and House was a direct result of the church committee. Within two months of the completion of the church committee's work, the Senate passed legislation creating the permanent Senate Intelligence Committee. Uh, and the House did that about a year later. And so the, the work of the church committee led to permanent oversight by Congress. It led to bans on the uh, assassinations, led to bans on a wide range of other activities, like the use of American journalists as CIA agents. Uh, and so uh, it really was kind of a watershed in the history of intelligence. It then became, after 9-11, the Bush administration, particularly Dick Cheney, Vice President Dick Cheney, heavily criticized the Church Committee, saying that they had limited the power of the intelligence community to uncover terrorist plots, and he wanted to gut all the rules that had been imposed uh, on the intelligence community in the aftermath of the Church Committee. And then the great irony now is that today Republicans have done a 180 and now love the Church Committee and say that we need a new Church Committee to investigate the intelligence community because Donald Trump has complained about uh, that he's the victim of a deep state. Uh, and so they all want a new church committee to investigate uh, the intelligence mm -hmm. community. And it's kind of funny that the uh, Republican Party has done a complete reversal on uh, the name, the church committee. Well, Jim, one of the privileges of my life and career and that of my wife, Kathy's, was meeting up with Bethine Church, uh, as I mentioned to you before we went on the air. Uh, when we first arrived in Boise State. I wonder if you could help our listeners just sum up as uh, the last question and answer what, what she yeah. meant to Frank Church, uh, his life and especially his career. She was quite, quite, quite the powerful influence uh, in, in his life and so many others. Yes, she was, uh, you know, as I said, they met in high school. Uh, she was, the, as I said, the daughter of Chase Clark, who was the governor of Idaho, a Democrat. And uh, she and Frank had at first had a really in, more of an intellectual relationship than a, a dating relationship. She became part of one of his, you know, he had a group, a close group of friends in high school. And it really only slowly developed into like a uh, boyfriend, girlfriend type relationship. And then when they went away to uh, college, they kind of drifted apart and then during World War II, you know, they stayed in touch, but she uh, got engaged to another man uh, while he was overseas. And yet, even then, they were still had this deeply ambivalent relationship where they were still clearly in love with each other, but were kind of not sure whether they were ever going to get together. And it was only at the end of the war when he came back and uh, realized that she did not love the man that she was engaged to, that they then decided to get married. And she very quickly kind of took the lead in their relationship and was, I think it's fair to say she was more politically ambitious than he was and helped push him all uh, at every step in his life 
he was in law school in the late uh, 40s and had cancer. And she stood by him while he had cancer. And then they moved back to Boise for him to get into politics. And she, you know, was really his major political advisor. Now, he ran for Senate in 1956 and then became essential to his uh, political career as he got into the Senate and then eventually ran for president in uh, 1976. And she, she was always, always had in her mind, how would whatever Frank's position on an issue was, how would that play in Idaho? And uh, she had a very good sense of what people in Idaho were thinking. She was always worried. She was deeply worried that his opposition to the war in Vietnam would hurt him in Idaho. And uh, I think she was surprised that it didn't. <laughs> uh, and she always really had a, almost a stranglehold on the staff. I mean, the, everybody liked her, but she was also like micromanaging the staff uh, in a way that was unusual. And so it was a real, it was a very much of a team between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Well, if there was ever a moment when a book like yours was required reading for anyone who occasionally loses hope on the future of our democratic republic, yours is it. It's The Last Honest Man by James Risen. Uh, so much we did not have time to cover, Jim, but this is the reason why we need to go out and read the book. Hope for a brighter future with more frank churches to serve as guardians of our democratic values. And we also, of course, look forward to seeing you this fall at the annual Frank Church Conference. Thanks so much for joining us today at Reader's Corner. And most importantly, thanks so much for writing The Last Honest Man. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.